I didn't start off going to school to say I wanted to be a disaster expert. Honestly, the lived experience, especially during my medical training, sort of created that awareness in real time of the need to use the superpower of being a healthcare provider in the larger disaster planning framework. I'm Dennis Wren, and this is Ready, Prep, Go! Origins. That day started like any other. I woke up at 5 a.m., drove myself to water polo practice, and I settled into that musty, dark space of our school's weight room for our conditioning session. And as we exited the gym, jumped in the pool, we barely started swimming when our coach abruptly stopped practice and he told us to get out. I was a medical student at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And I could see the smoke rising from the Pentagon on that day. I had woken up that morning and switched on the TV before heading to anatomy class. And at that point, everyone knew the world would be forever changed. And I saw the first plane hit the World Trade Center. My father used to work in the World Trade Center, and I remember when he was there during the first bombing in 1993. So I recall seeing the footage of that first plane hitting on September 11th and having this thought, what if my dad were in that building? I remember feeling like everything shut down that day. Classes were canceled. We were all waiting, thinking that there'd be another plane heading towards the White House. You're listening to Dr. Joelle Simpson, Division Chief of Emergency Medicine and Medical Director of Emergency Preparedness at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Chances are, if you think hard enough, you can remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you first heard the news on September 11, 2001. On this tragic day in American history, Two commercial airliners hijacked by terrorists crashed into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. Another plane hit the Pentagon, and a fourth plane crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. Close to 3,000 lives were lost, with countless more injured and lives changed forever. But within this tragedy, there are also stories of community. People coming together as New Yorkers and as Americans. The events of 9-11 forever changed how our nation prepares and responds to disasters. There's a saying that all disasters are local, meaning that they typically always start on a local level before escalating to the state and then federal level. But the events of September 11th were kind of atypical, right? It was a terrorist attack that impacted multiple states almost simultaneously because they all happened within the course of an hour. That's right. but. Most disasters start on the local level. However, now, having lived through the COVID-19 pandemic, we can quickly see how some disasters can become global. Okay, so how about we talk locally first, and then we'll broaden things afterwards. Sure, that sounds good. Now, I remember meeting another emergency department doctor who was working in New York when the planes hit the towers. And he told me that they were completely unprepared for what happened. 
He knew that they needed to open up as much space as possible to treat the injured, so he walked into the waiting room and told everyone what was happening and then let them know that some with non-emergent complaints would have to wait a while so they could make space to take care of the incoming victims. How'd that work out? Uh, Surprisingly well. He said many of them understood and actually left. Meanwhile, out in the field, NYPD, New York Fire Department, EMS were setting up staging areas around the site and rushing into collapsing buildings trying to save people. We even saw the Coast Guard and other civilian boats helping evacuate people who were stranded in the water. And I think that just really shows you how New Yorkers can come together. It wasn't just New Yorkers coming together, although that's a very good thing. There was an outpouring of support from Americans and the global community. And 11 days after 9-11, we saw the creation of a Department of Homeland Security, which brought together over 20 different federal agencies with the goal of keeping America safe. Well, I want to take a step back from our conversation about 9-11 specifically and focus on a theme that just keeps coming up over and over again, and that is community. People coming together because that seems to be a permeating theme in disasters. Absolutely. Disasters are a team sport where everyone has a role to play. Community is the backbone of disaster preparedness. And I think there's a concept of volunteerism where there's a lot of good people who hear about disasters and want to be able to help. Now, Joelle, one of the things that you are particularly passionate about is engaging the community in disasters. And one way to get involved in disaster efforts is joining what is called a Medical Reserve Corps, or MRC. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, that's one of my sort of proudest accomplishments. The purpose of the Medical Reserve Corps is to recruit a team of local volunteers. Usually they're people in the medical or public health field, but they can be general public as well, and they're activated during a crisis. And so when you say that this was one of your proudest accomplishments, I think you're referring to the creation of the first ever pediatric medical reserve corps in the United States. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And I I love the emphasis you put on the first ever. It's really interesting that it was the first ever because From the lens that I sit, children are so important to be thought of and cared for and prepared for in times of disaster. So, yes, we wanted to make sure that we in Washington, D.C., were prepared to meet the needs of children and families in the case of a citywide emergency. Collaborating with the existing Medical Reserve Corps in D.C. for training and educational activities was one of the most rewarding activities that I've been a part of. Joelle, have you seen this effort replicated across the nation at all? I think that we are growing in our recognition of pediatrics being incorporated into the planning of activities. In the past, I think it was a family approach, which is appropriate. But the unique needs of children is so important. Thinking about the developmental level, their understanding of the crisis at hand, and also thinking very importantly about planning for the recovery in the aftermath of a disaster. So More and more pockets of our population, whether it be a medical reserve corps or other types of organizations involved in disaster response and recovery, are taking children's needs into account. And I think that's just one example of how you've engaged with the community and made them stakeholders in disasters as well. But I understand there was another opportunity that you had where you were actually able to dive back into your roots. And this happened during the most recent COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, you're very right. I was uh, born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago. And during the pandemic, there was some outreach that the communities in the Caribbean 
were seeing news in America. They were hearing the news in their local communities. But there might have been some disconnect in the understanding of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the availability of supplies and medical countermeasures, i.e. vaccines that would be available to protect them. So I was invited to do a series of video conferences in collaboration with the embassy and ambassador of Trinidad and Tobago to provide some education and to answer questions about the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, we saw a lot of misinformation and disinformation during the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, and a lot of them centered around the vaccines. So how was the experience of doing those video conferences for you? It was really what I would describe as a full circle moment, because I'm a physician trained in America and had been leading a lot of the COVID-19 incident command disaster response work at the children's hospital that I work in. And so there was this idea that being in the medical community, we had one understanding of what we thought was being translated into our communities. And then when I say full circle, just thinking about the culture within which I was raised, I could see where there was some disconnect in even the words we used, how we had engaged with the population that we were serving, and in being able to make that connection between some of the cultural perceptions of what was going on as well as sort of the medical and science jargon and and break that down, that was really very fulfilling. So it sounds like your background, the fact that you were from the area, gave you credibility, but in some ways your training in the United States and even this perception of being a trained medical professional might have even led to some disconnect simultaneously. Are there any examples that you can give of those moments? One of the most reliable sources of information within the family unit, and this is not unique to Trinidad or Tobago, is often the grandparents. They are found to have the most years of experience in parenting, usually, and often knows how we sort of raised those healthy kids back in the day. However, the engagement we had with our older adults in the population around what a vaccine was and where there was some sort of misinformation spreading in communities about that vaccine was causing these new illnesses like autism or the things that weren't around back in their day could lead to translating that the vaccine was causing problems that they didn't have to deal with back when they were kids and so therefore giving advice within their own families, thinking it was the best advice and therefore spreading a myth that was not informed by the evidence. So in being able to rephrase what that experience was about in stating that there were some many uncounted deaths and mishaps of illness that could have been prevented by vaccines back in the day and really explain in that narrative to families why grandparents aren't necessarily wrong because they're right. They'd never heard about these new fancy vaccines back when they were younger But at the same time, the presence of those vaccines have prevented illness that they may not have been aware of, given the lack of information that was being spread back then, is really important. And giving that context has really helped understand why our younger generations that were eligible for the vaccines at the time could both respect their grandparents and take their advice, but also apply what was happening today in the new science to make themselves and protect themselves from the pandemic. I love that you were kind of able to come together on a common point, right? You you all had the shared common goal of wanting to do what was best for the family, for the people, and just had 
different perspectives of how to go about it. And like you said, reframing it kind of made it a little bit more palatable or digestible. Yeah. Respecting the fact, too, that the elders in a family are so highly respected and knowing that trying to counter them without explaining why science was new, why science was relevant in a different way, was really, really important. Thinking forward now, as this is likely not the only disaster that we are going to face in our lifetime, unfortunately, what do you think is our role as healthcare professionals? How do we actually have a communication and not just simply talk at the people that we want to help? That's an excellent question, Dennis. And I'll have to say that, as I mentioned before, to me, the backbone of successful disaster planning is really understanding your community because there's so many mishaps that can occur if you haven't engaged your community in where their needs are and meet them where they are. I think future planning will need to start in communities. Like we said, disasters are local. And as we build out from there, we realize that the uniqueness of the communities is why it's not cut and paste from the disaster plan that occurs in California to New York to Utah. It all is relevant and needs to be relevant to the communities they serve in order to be successful. And what we're finding is that even though disasters are local, when planning occurs on the federal level, it needs to be with an infrastructure in mind that builds in the fact that the time that it takes to build community relationships and also as healthcare professionals to show up for our communities in a way that is not just in times of crisis, but continuing to learn from them as we are right now in learning through the recovery from the pandemic on how we do better next time, how we show up for our communities in a way that is proactive and not reactive after the crisis has occurred. Yeah, I love that you reinforce this concept of this is a partnership. This is not just us trying to help. This is us really engaging and coming together in order to do what's best for the community. And I also love that you say that it's not cookie cutter, right? When we're thinking about the interventions that we want to do, we want to make sure that we acknowledge and are respectful of the diversity, the cultures that we're seeing in communities all over the place. So maybe we have a framework there, but when it comes to the specifics of how we communicate, maybe that has to differ depending on the, the background of the population. Absolutely. And then you layer in sort of the ideas of thinking about all the generations of the culture and what may be important to plan for the younger generations today who have a different level of dexterity, for instance, with um, IT support. Or if we build into things like that have emerged during the pandemic, like telemedicine, but also have to acknowledge that for those youth to use telemedicine, they need the consent of their older parents who may not feel as trustworthy of these sort of IT interventions in a disaster response. So we really have to build in those partnerships to understand how do we introduce and plan and engage in ideas that can advance disaster preparedness for communities in an all-encompassing way. Now, Joelle, you are also one of the bigwigs. You are a principal investigator for the Pediatric Pandemic Network. Do you want to share any efforts, projects that are ongoing right now that are engaging the community? I would have to say that after the MRC, Pediatric Pandemic Network is also a very proud moment. I am so glad that even in the building of the Pediatric Pandemic Network, it took engagement of our healthcare community, public health advocates, and our community 
to do what's best for children and to learn from the experience of the pandemic. One of the hallmark initiatives within the Pandemic Network is to really address these issues of health equity, seeing the sort of drastic impact that the pandemic took in very different ways across different communities, and being able to engage those communities in solving some of those issues and in doing better next time. So we have been working on two concepts in the leadership of the Pediatric Pandemic Network, which is building a youth advisory committee and a community advisory committee. And by advisory, I mean they are advising at the very highest level of the network, which is really intended to bring together 10 children's hospitals across the U.S., to multiply that into many more children's hospitals and their partners, meaning community hospitals, EMS agencies, all of the healthcare infrastructure, to be guided by their communities in how we do better for the next threat, and not just for pandemics, for all disasters. So as we're building that right now, and we're selecting our candidates from the community, and also really what's nice is selecting our youth. Because the experience of the pandemic for children that were school-aged, that were having conversations, that were understanding a lot of what was going on, and possibly misunderstanding a lot as well, it's really important to capture what their experience has been at this point so that future generations can learn from their experience in guiding how they can not only be protected in a threat, but maybe sometimes how they can be part of the workforce in the response. Because that brings us about a sense of fulfillment that has really been remarkable and what has been reported by many youth saying, engage me, use me, don't just put me off to the side and think that that's what it means to protect me. And that has been a resounding message for me in assuming that sometimes what's best is to try to put all our kids in a bubble so they'll never be hurt. But honestly, what's really fulfilling and what we've learned in some instances, there are some youth that want to be there to support their family. They know that they're the ones that maybe have the most dexterity with things like telemedicine and telehealth. And, and I'm not saying that we need them to be the, the rescuers of a disaster, but I do think we need to think differently about how we engage them. And I'm excited about the Youth Advisory Committee, where we will be asking those questions and tackling that very topic. And these are going to be the future leaders of disaster. Absolutely. I'm succession planning as we speak. <laughs> well, Joel, this is episode one, and it's titled Origins. And so for me, I, I can't help think about origins without thinking like a, a superhero story. And for you, really, 9-11 was just the beginning. And you've had, fortunately and unfortunately, the experience of undergoing many a disaster in the course of your training. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I didn't start off going to school to say I wanted to be a disaster expert. But honestly, the lived experience, especially during my medical training, sort of created that awareness in real time of the need to use the superpower of being a healthcare provider in standing up for what I was observing for my patients in the larger disaster planning framework. So I think what you're talking about is, yes, there was 9-11, which was my first year of medical school. But then there was my first year out as a pediatrician in the community uh, was the year of the H1N1 pandemic. And during medical school, I had the experience you know, around 9-11 was the anthrax scare in, in Washington, D.C. There was the sniper uh, crisis that we had at that time. So year after year, during the formative years of my medical training, there were multiple threats that 
really had long-standing impact on healthcare and patients and healthcare delivery. And then around me, working in Washington, D.C., seeing these federal agencies that were being built around the concept of disaster, it all sort of added up to really carving out in a real-life observation that ultimately became a career for me. Well, Joel, I will personally say I'm very glad that with your experience and expertise, you are at the helm of helping us think about how we deal with disasters. But I think also most importantly, you are also thinking about how we create the next generation and future of disaster leaders and partnering with the community. Well, honestly, that's what makes it more fun. So it's really nice to have that challenge, right? Thinking about Who's going to be in our shoes talking about the experience they had in a disaster that hopefully was mitigated in terms of the experience and how awful it could have been because they were better prepared. They had been thought of when the planning occurred. That kid right now that's out there in the community 20 years from now will hopefully have our jobs <laughs> and uh, be doing even better at that point uh, to continue to put our communities at the forefront and, and protect us. Well, Joelle, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I definitely learned so much from you. And going forward, this is a team sport. So we'll make it through together. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. If you have comments, feedback, or you have a great story you want to share, please email us at readyprepgopodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Pediatric Pandemic Network a network of children's hospitals working to improve health outcomes of children and the resiliency of children, families, and communities impacted by emergencies, disasters, and pandemics. Until next time, stay ready. The Pediatric Pandemic Network is supported in part by the Health Resources and Services Administration of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The content presented here is that of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.